I invite you to take your copy copy of God's Word and go to 2 Peter. So let me start with a question. What do you think of when you hear the word godly? Okay? Who do you think of? What characteristics of that person come to your mind when you hear the word godly? For me, I think of my grandfather. His name was Robert Scott. Um, Isaiah's middle name is Robert, partly I've named after my grandfather. He, I've mentioned him before, but he was a man who uh, read the Bible a lot. I've shared that with you before. He, uh, about seven times a year, uh, cover to cover, he would read the Bible through. Um, he was a man who prayed a lot. Um, I, I lived with him for a short time uh, as a teenager, and I, I discovered that he had a habit of getting up very early in the morning and praying. And at that time, you know, I'm a teenager, and the idea of getting up early in the morning when you don't have to was confusing to me, okay? He was retired at this point, and I asked him, I said, why do you get up so early to pray? You know, God hears prayers 24-7. You don't have to schedule an early appointment. You know, why do you do this? You know what he told me? He said that he got up and began to pray at 4 o'clock in the morning every day because that was the day his son, my father, was getting up to go to work. And he wanted to be praying for his son as he began his work day. That was, that was impactful to me. So he was a man who read the Bible a lot. He prayed a lot. He wanted to tell people about Christ. He always had in his pocket these uh, pamphlets, gospel tracts, as you might know them as. And he would leave them everywhere he went. We would go places, and he would always be given to places. I remember going to a tire shop one time with him because he had to get a tire fixed, and he was giving these out to people as he was there. And uh, I remember uh, at a restaurant walking into the bathroom, and, uh, and he had been in there before me and seeing that he had placed a tract on every toilet and accessible place around for people. Apparently, he was cashing in on the fact that people like reading material in the bathroom. And so he was putting these things out there. He was a very kind and generous man. Uh, people uh, uh, you know, always talked about how kind he was. In fact, he, he would have been, he, he would, uh, this past week, his birthday, he would have been 94 years old. But he died in 96, and so he died fairly young, only 73 years old. And so when I think of a godly person, sometimes the very first name that comes to my mind is my grandfather's. Not only was he gracious and kind, but he also said that he was sorry. Uh, and he admitted when he was wrong. I, there's a really quickly, uh, there was a story where I got blamed for doing something wrong, and he was blaming me for it, and actually it was my older brother that did it, and my older brother was standing there, not going to change the story at all, <laughs> and I took the heat for it, and then eventually it got found out, you know, who was the, the true culprit in all this, but my grandfather, remember them having a meeting, my, I remember my grandfather coming to me after discussion, and he said, Jeremy, I was wrong to falsely accuse you, and I was a little boy at this time. He said, would you please forgive me? Well, that was impactful 
to me that a man who I revered very much so admitted that he was wrong. And so I think of, I think of when I think of godly, I think, I think of my grandfather. But, you know, is that truly what makes someone godly? Is it, is it reading your Bible a lot? Is it praying a lot? Is it being generous and kind? Is it giving, uh, you know, telling people about Jesus? Is it being willing to say you're sorry? Is that truly what it means to be godly? So I want you to wrestle with that question for a couple minutes. And hopefully by the end of our time together, we can get a good answer to that question. But as you ponder that one, let me ask you one other question, and that's this. Would you consider yourself to be godly? Do you think that you are a godly person? Can you be a godly person? You see, for me... Um, there's different personalities in this world. There are the people who want to always achieve and they're pushing and they're always trying to be successful and they're trying to be the best at whatever they do and so they're motivated. And so for someone like that, that question that I just asked, they'd be like, well, man, I, I, I'm trying my hardest. But there's another type of personality that understands they look. I'm not going to be the best, okay? I'm just going to be happy with mediocre. I'm going to be happy with just being who I am. I'm going to be happy with average. In the spiritual sense, is that acceptable? What does God expect of us in the realm of godliness? Is it even possible? Let's look at this text of Scripture here that I've had you open to, and then we'll pray and we'll seek to answer these questions. I'm going to start in verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him, who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to make your calling and election sure. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pause and just ask God to direct this time as we look at his word, shall we? Father, I don't want to speak about you or for you or speak about your word or try to tell people what your word means without 
confessing my dependence upon you and the fact that it really is your spirit that is going to teach this text today. I, I simply want to be the, the mouthpiece. I simply want to teach what it says, but I, I, I fully recognize and everyone here recognizes that it is, it's not about a preacher, it's not about a personality, it's not about a form, it's about your spirit using your word and your servants to communicate truth, transforming truth. And so in this moment, we, we readily accept that and ask that your spirit would guide us and teach us, and that we would be sensitive to what you would have for us. And I pray, Father, I pray that you would protect us right now. Whenever we want to exalt the name of Jesus Christ, we have an enemy that is bothered by that and will do anything to distract us from that. We recognize that. And so I pray that in this time right now, we would... Uh, we would feel the presence of Christ in the sense that he is keeping away distractions and keeping away attacks from us so that we may follow you and obey you and listen to your word and be transformed by your spirit's ministry in our hearts. And so we're asking this because you would receive glory and honor. You would receive uh, uh, praise And we have already given you praise today, and we want to continue to give you praise by how we treat your word and interact with it right now. And so, Lord, we pray that your spirit would guide us. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. So here's what I want to start with today. There's uh, uh, just three main points, really, as I begin to go through this. And here's the first proposition, and really kind of in propositional statements. And here it is is you can live a godly life, okay? Number one, you can live a godly life. It's possible for you to live a godly life. Every person here, there's no exceptions to this. And I say that because sometimes we like to think that there's a hierarchy, or sometimes we like to think that there are levels, and for the, uh, the people who are really serious about God, they live God's lives, I'm just going to live happily day to day. But the reality is, according to this text, and according to the, all of Scripture, you can live a godly life. Now, how do I know that? Well, first of all, because godly living has a direct connection to Jesus' divine power. Did you see that in verse 3, when it says, His divine power has granted you all things that pertain, or all things that are necessary, for what? For life and godliness. And so, it is, it's a connection, not to my ability. It's a connection not to my personality. It's a connection to God, to Jesus's divine power. And by the way, that's a good argument for the deity of Christ. Here Jesus is being talked about and it's told that he has divine power. But immediately what we see when we're considering this notion of godliness is that it starts outside of us. Did you see that? It says it was according to his divine power. So it doesn't start with you. Now, I, for one, take very good, great comfort in that fact because there are so many times where I make mistakes and I sin and I fall short and I know the depths of my sinfulness and I know the fact of how many times just by my nature I want to be opposed to God and I want to resist what God is doing. That is in my nature and I see that come out all the time. And so if the question is, Jeremy, can you be godly? The answer is yes. Yes 
And the reason why is not because of any type of training that I have. It's not because I was related to a grandfather that walked with God or I had parents that encouraged me to walk with God. That's not how I can be godly. And that's not how you can be godly. It's not about whether your, your heritage is good enough, whether your performance is good enough. That's not where this whole notion of you being godly starts from. It starts with Jesus' divine power. It starts outside of you. And so if you're sitting here today and thinking, man, there's no way I could be godly, or I am not godly, or whatever the case what you're thinking of, is understand that the direct connection to Jesus' power is what fuels our ability to be godly. Did you notice that he says that he has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness? This is the idea of that it was done in the past and that the effects of it continue on in perpetuity. And so that we don't have to worry about, will God have to renew the subscription of whatever he's given to us out of his divine power? No, he has given us, what does the scripture say there? It says, all things. It doesn't say that there are some things that he's given you for godliness. He says he's given you everything you need to be godly. There's there's nothing missing there. When Anouk was in the hospital this last time, her last surgery... I remember bringing the kids up there and she, as recovery was coming and, and she was able to go through a, a walk and we were walking down the hallway and at the edge of the hallway there's a little table and they have puzzles there. And so Mia and myself and everyone, we just started putting puzzles together. Except for Isaiah, he was trying to hide the pieces. But other than that, the rest of us, we were putting the puzzle together there. And we got it, and, it was a, and I remember it was a picture of the Capitol building, beautiful building downtown, and, and we're putting all the pieces together and things like this, and so we get to it, and we get to the end, and guess what happened? We were missing how many pieces, do you think? One, and who was going nuts? This guy, okay, all right? Because it wasn't complete, right? It was missing one thing, and we're looking all over the place for this one piece. And so as much as I wanted to look at that puzzle, as much as I wanted to look at that picture and say, man, that's a beautiful picture of the Capitol building, the only thing I could notice was that there was a piece missing, right? You know, when Jesus here, when Peter is telling us about Jesus and what he's done here, he says he has given us all things. There are no missing puzzle pieces here. There are no missing pieces at all because Jesus, according to his divine power, has given us everything that you and I need for godliness. So godly living is not a question of possibility. It's not a question of whether or not you can be a godly person. You can live a godly life. In fact, I would argue that Jesus expects us to be godly. So it doesn't start with us. It's outside of us. It's totally connected to Jesus' divinity and his power. So how do we live God's lives then? What is he talking about here? And this is the second propositional statement. That's this. Faith is the key to godly life. Faith is the key to godly life. That's where we're going to get into some theological waters here that it's going to be so impactful of my prayers that it would be impactful to you. As I was studying this week in my office and I was recounting this, it was incredibly moving to me to go through this, these theological thoughts again. And I hope that, that you don't think that these are simplistic. Because the gospel 
and the power of Christ and the faith that God has granted is never simple. It's never something to be taken lightly. And if you've grown up in church, as I have, you have heard about faith and belief in Jesus Christ so much. But I pray that it would never grow old. It would never, never, ever grow old. And so faith really is the key to God the living. Now, how do I know this? What do, why, why do I say this? Well, because Peter indicates here in this text that faith is the foundational element in all of this in two ways. First of all, it says through the knowledge of him. And so he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. How? Through the knowledge of him, it says in verse 3. And so it has the idea there of not an academic knowledge or an intellectual knowledge, but the idea is a personal knowledge, a belief in the person here is what he's And so when he says that he's given us all things for life and godliness, he's saying that comes through the knowledge or the belief in, the acceptance of, the personal knowing, the intimate knowing of this person that we know as Jesus Christ. And so this is how we know that faith is the key to this. But there's another way that we know that faith is the key to this. We have, starting in verse 5, this, I don't know what to call it, other than the list, okay, Theologians differ on, on, on what to call this. Some, they use different metaphors for it. Some people call this uh, a ladder. Some people call this a chain. Chain is probably the most uh, uh, used metaphor for this. I think they all are a little weak at times in that. I'm just simply going to call it the list here. In verse 5, it says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. When Peter gets to his list, if a lot of times what we say, this is how we deliver a godly life, and we look at this and say all these things need to be ever in our lives, notice this, that he starts with faith. He doesn't tell us to add faith. Faith is the beginning point. Faith is the which everything else that he is going to mention in this list, it gets added to faith. Okay, And so it's not that he says you need to have more faith, you need to get greater faith or deeper faith. He says you start with the faith and then you add these things too. And we're going to come back to that, why that's so important in just a few minutes. But what we need to understand right now is that faith is the foundational element to you and me living a godly life. And so here's what we need to understand is that if this is indeed true, we need to understand what faith really is. Faith is, and if you don't get anything else, get this today, let it burn in your soul that faith is a miraculous gift from God. Okay? It is a miraculous gift from God. I'm going to say it one more time. It is a miraculous gift from God. Let's start with the gift idea. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. It is a gift of God. We saw that everything that we need for life and godliness comes outside of us. It, comes, it starts from Jesus Christ. And so even the faith that we have is a gift that God has given to us. So if you're here today and you believe in Jesus Christ, if you're here today and you're saying, yes, I have faith in Jesus Christ, you need to understand that's a gift. You understand that that was something that God has given to you. And if you're here today and you say, man, I don't have that, but I want that. How do I get that gift? The Bible says if you even have that desire for the gift, that gift is on its way. You just need to ask God for it. So it is a gift from the Lord. Now, I said it was not just a gift, but I said it was a miraculous gift. Now, the best way for me to describe this, I thought, would remind us of, of a parable. A parable of the sower. Remember the parable of the sower? Jesus said it's 
the kingdom of heaven is like this. And so there's a man that goes out and he's got a bag full of seeds and he puts his, his hand into the bag and he scatters the seeds. And he's just throwing it out there. And then what Jesus, been, the, the focus is, is the type of ground that it falls on. He says, first of all, he says, this is the, the, and this will be Matthew 13 if you ever wanted to read this for yourself, but he says this, he says, it fell on, a, on the path, on the rocky ground, and birds come and snatch it away. And then he talks about others that falls on the ground where it's hard ground, but yet it begins to, to take root a little bit, but the sun comes up and it, it scorches it and, it, and it, and any type of life that had begun to start is, is, is killed by the heat. And then he begins to talk about a third type of ground where he says it's taking root, but thorns grow up around it and begin to choke it out so there's no life anymore and the, and, and the fruit is gone. But then he talks about the last soil, and he says it's the good soil, where it goes in and it brings forth great fruit and of different categories of different kinds and everything like that. Then Jesus, in his mercy, in this case, he gives us the interpretation of the parable. And he talks about how that, that first when the birds came, he says, the birds, that's Satan. The gospel goes out. And it's scattered amongst people, but Satan comes along and he starts snatching this up and he starts taking it away. He takes those seeds of the gospel, those seeds of God's word, and he takes it away. And there's no life there. He says the thorns, or excuse me, the heat. He says, you know, that's the trials and tribulations of this life. And particularly if you start at, you know, telling people that you're going to follow Jesus and then it's not popular and the trials and the tribulations and things come, that's going to kill that seed there. The third, the, 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 the thorns that grow up, he talks about that's being the cares of the world and desire for the things of this world, and particularly in reference to uh, uh, wealth and things like that. He says, that will just choke it out. And so here's what I want you to understand today. If you have faith, that means that in God's love towards you, he protected you from Satan's snatching the seed away. If you have faith today, that means that as the, the, the devil was coming to try to snatch away the gospel that was being spread into your soul, God was out there shooing those birds away and saying, Nuh-uh, this is my child. My child's going to have faith. You see, this is miraculous here if you have faith in Christ because he said, no, Satan, you are not going to have this one. And that means that the trials, he took, gave you protection from that scorching sun that would annihilate your faith. He says, no, I am going to protect this from this person from that, and from the cares of this world, the thorns that are choking out. You see, if you and I have faith today, what we can learn from the parable of the sower is not that you need to be good soil. What you need to understand from the parable of the sower is that God did a miraculous work in your soul to allow you to be good soil for faith to spring up. And so faith is a miraculous gift from the Lord. And if you and I are going to live a godly life, we need to understand that faith comes from God and that we need to ask Him for it. We need to understand that this is a miraculous gift. And so please, please never take that for granted. Never take it for granted that you believe in Jesus Christ because I can show you thousands upon thousands of people who do not believe in Jesus Christ. And the answer to the question I have to ask you is what makes you better than them? 
The answer is nothing. I have family members that do not believe in Jesus Christ. Am I smarter than them? No. Am I wiser than them? No. It was a miraculous gift from Jesus that I believe in him. On September 28, 1983, I believe that was the beginning point when God said, I am protecting this soil and I'm going to give him faith. And I pray that I never get over that fact. And I pray the same for you. You see, if we're going to live godly lives, we need to understand that faith is a miraculous gift. But what about, not just, okay, there's that, but what about this idea of sometimes people think, I just don't have enough faith to be godly. My faith isn't strong enough. You know, and I've been wrestling through this notion recently. You know, the disciples once asked the Jesus, they said, increase her faith. This is Luke 17, I think. Um, yeah, Luke 17. Now, it's interesting. If you remember this, this passage here, the disciples walk up to Jesus, and they say, increase her faith. And Jesus responds in a way that I would not think. Now, if it were me, I would expect Jesus, if I were to walk up to Jesus and say, Jesus, you know, I want to have more faith in you. I would almost expect Jesus to kind of pat me on the head and say, that's good. That's good. He wants more faith. That's good. Yeah, you're, you're on the right track, Jeremy. That's awesome. Yeah. Here, let me, let me give you a little bit more. I would expect him to do that. I would expect him to say, more faith? That's good. If a little bit's good, more's better, right? And, and that's what we always say, right? You know, a little bit of French fries are good. A lot is better, right? A small shamrock shake is good. A large is better, okay? We can continue on understanding this. And so a little bit of faith is fine, but more is better. Do you remember how Jesus responded with that question? In Luke 17, what Jesus did, he didn't say, oh, that's good. He didn't say, okay, here's some more faith. Here's what Jesus did. He starts talking about a tree getting uprooted and chucked into the sea. That makes no sense to me. And so here's what Jesus says. He says, if you were to have the faith the size of the grain of a mustard seed, now, we all know the mustard seed is legendary for being tiny and small, okay, microscopic, okay? He says, if you would have faith like, a, like that of a, the size of a seed, of a, a mustard seed, then you could say to this mulberry tree here, uproot and be planted into the sea. Now, either Jesus doesn't like mulberry trees or he's got another thing he's trying to teach here. And so what he says, he, notice that he doesn't even answer the disciples' question about a mount. He's saying it's not about a mount. It's not about you getting more faith. He said, the faith, that I, the faith that I bestow upon people, even if it's tiny and insignificant, it can do wonders that you will never, ever know. 
And so the question isn't about whether or not you have enough faith. Because if God has put faith in that miraculous gift, if he's put that in your soul, even if it was the size of a mustard seed, tiny, even if it was just a tiny, insignificant amount of faith in our mind, it would be more powerful than, it would be so powerful that we could do miracles with. And so the question isn't really about the amount of faith what Jesus is getting at. He's saying the object of faith is important. It's who you're believing in. God is the one who plants trees. God is the one who decides where trees go. And he says, I'm giving you part of the divine nature here, what it says in Second Peter, not in the sense that we become God, but what he's saying is that he's given us part of who he is in the sense that we believe in him and he's given us all things for life and godliness. And so it's really not a question of the amount of faith. And so I think there's another way that we can understand this too, what, what Peter here, back in Second Peter, what he's saying, that it's not about a hierarchy of faith, because did you notice in verse 1 when he said, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Now, what does he mean by that? Theologians differ on what, what Peter was getting at here. Some people think that he was bringing up the tension between Jews and Gentiles. Um, that's very possible. Um, it, it seems slightly unlikely in, in a sense to me, only because we don't see that, uh, that tension coming up in the rest of the book. But they're saying, uh, one theory is that he's talking to the people that would be Gentile of nature, and him being a Jew, he's saying, look, you're a Gentile, but your faith is the same as mine. Okay, there's no hierarchy here. That's possible. The second uh, plausible uh, way to understand what, what Peter's trying to do here is he's trying to talk about that he's an apostle, and these people he's writing to, they're not apostles. They don't have the standing that he has, the apostolic office that they do. So it'd be like he's the apostle, they're just the regular Joes. And so he's saying that, that that's a, 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 it doesn't matter here. So either way, however we understand what Peter's trying to do here, we need to understand that they're saying, there's no hierarchy of faith here. And so what that brings us to, leads me to understand, is that when we understand that it's not about amount of faith, it's not about having a different kind of faith, it's not about saying, oh, if I could have the faith like my grandfather, then I could be godly. Or, oh, if I had the faith of someone down the street there, then I could be godly. No, the idea is that it's not a type of different type of faith, it's the idea of the object of our faith. Because Jesus says that he's given us all things. It comes from him. And so our devotion isn't to a specific level of faith. Our devotion is to the person of Jesus Christ. And so faith is the key here if we're going to live a godly life. Now that leads me to my last point here. So what about this list then? See, I had to give all that background because if we don't have all that understanding of what I just went through here, we would misinterpret this text. So what is it? How do we understand what Peter's trying to say? And let me read it again just for you in verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort. So it's talking about you got to work hard at this. Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, with virtue knowledge, and knowledge self-control, and self-control steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. Now, I'm not going to go through today and, study, and, and kind of go through each one of those. That would be a good study at another time. But we're talking about kind of what is the, the theme of the text here? What, what is he saying here? So how do we understand this list here? Let me tell you what Peter's not saying here. 
Peter is not saying that you have to do all these things that I just read in order to get faith. He's not saying, okay, you want faith, now you need to love, have brotherly kindness, be steadfast, and all these things, then you're going to get faith. No, we already pointed out that the whole list starts with faith, okay? So he's not saying that in order for you to have godly faith or to be a godly person, this is the list that you got to check off. He's not saying that you need to do all these things in order to find approval from God or, or to please God. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying here you need to do all these things to keep God happy. That's not the point of this list. Because it starts with faith that is a miraculous gift from God. And then out of that, then we need to live out these things. And so the reason why I know that he is not saying to do all those things in order to get God's favor is because of what Paul says in Galatians chapter 2 when he says this. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law or for doing all the good things then Christ died for no purpose. And so the fact is, is that this is not a list that is intended for us to look at and say, okay, I've got to do this today, and I've got to do this today, and this today. Then I will be a godly person. We, we flipped it around. But here's what Peter, this is what Peter is saying in this. All of these things, these supplements, if you will, or whatever we want to call them, they come out of faith. They come out of the faith that God has granted to us. And this is what Paul meant when he said that we need to be working out our salvation with fear and trembling. In in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, he says, work out your salvation. What does that mean? That's very confusing because we're supposed not to work for our salvation. But what he's saying there is he's saying that as you have true faith, it will manifest itself in some of these things. This is a consistent message in the scriptures. Did not James say the same thing? Did not he say that faith without works is what? Dead, right? And so if we're going to have true faith, these things will come out of it. And it takes work. But it's got to be motivated by the faith that God has given to us, not an effort to gain the faith or to gain the godliness. This is a very crucial nuance that we have to get, otherwise we're going to misunderstand this text. And so, the Christian life is not a life of works to earn God's favor, but it is not a life of passivity either. This is why Paul wrote to Timothy, he says, train yourself for godliness, and so there are these things we should be doing in our lives, but it's not an effort to please God in the sense of, okay, I'm going to earn favor and I'm going to get faith from him. No, 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 no. It flows from the miraculous gift that God has given to us. So how do we know if we're properly interpreting this list or not? How do we know if we're, we're living this out in the right way or not? And I think the key is it really comes down to motivation. We have two choices. The first motivation is that, man, if I don't do these things, I am not a good person, so i got to do these things. Or if I don't do these things, God's not going to accept me. Or if I don't do these things, people are going to, they're going to judge me. They're, what are they going to think of me? And so i got to do these things. If that's the way we approach passages like this, your, your life is going to be burdensome. You're going to feel this to be a weight. You're going to feel this to be like, I can't do this. I'm too tired 
to do these things. I don't have the ability to do these things. I mean, one of the things on the list is self-control. I am not very good at self-control. One of the things is steadfastness. How can I do that? If you're looking at this of, in order for people to accept me, in order for God to accept me, I have to do these things, the Christian life for you is going to be one of intense burden. And that is not what God has intended. Because like John wrote in his first uh, letter, he says that the, the commands are not burdensome. So there must be another motivation, and that's this. Out of gratefulness to God for that miraculous faith that he's given to us, we do these things. Out of love for God, we do these things. Out of a desire to know him more, we do these things. Then all of a sudden those commands aren't very burdensome. For those of you who are married, go back to the times when you first started dating. Okay? And think of the interactions you had with your spouse. Think of the conversations you had. Think of the things that you were willing to do um, to impress your spouse. Jobs, projects, whatever it is. Um, at one point when Anouk and I were uh, trying to figure out if we were interested in each other, basically I was waiting for her to get the memo. Um, but um, uh, I lived, we actually lived next door to each other. And I uh, would offer to uh, change the oil on their cars and fix things around the house. Why? Because I wanted to spend time with her because I wanted to get to know her more. I appreciated her and her beauty. And I said, man, I want to be around this person. And so I'm doing all these things. Well, I don't change the oil in our cars anymore. (laughs) (laughs) And we live in a townhouse, so I don't have to fix things around the house anymore. Um, I don't enjoy. I don't enjoy working on cars. I don't enjoy working on projects around the house. But I did it then. Why? Because of the object, the person. It was motivated by love. It was motivated by a desire to get to know her more. And so it wasn't burdensome for me to change the oil. It wasn't burdensome for me to be fixing things around the house. It was joy because I wanted to be near her. I think the same thing is with our relationship with God. If it's motivated out of, oh, I just got to keep them happy. If I just think, oh, Anouk, she just will not leave me alone until I change the oil on the car, or she won't leave me alone. How am I going to view that project? It's going to be burdensome to me. It's going to weigh me down. But if I view it, if I view God's commands in the way of, I want to get to know this God. I want to spend time with him. I love him. I'm so grateful for the the, the miraculous gift of faith that he has implanted in my soul and how he protected me from Satan's attack. And he protected me from the scorching sun of trials and temptations. And he protected me from the cares of this world, from choking out faith in me. He's done this for me. He's given me faith. And out of love for him, I want to know him and I want to obey him. Guess what those commands? They're not burdensome at all. See, the key is motivation. The key is what's driving us. Hosea chapter 6 verse 3 says, Let us press on to know the Lord. 
John 17, verse 3 says, And this is eternal life. Here it is. That, that, they, that, that they may know you. And this is John talking about to Jesus. They may know you, or Jesus talking to God, that they may know you, the only God in Jesus whom you have sent. He's talking about that in order to have eternal life, that we, uh, uh, the, or what eternal life is, is a knowledge of Jesus Christ, of knowing him. So having this motivation leads to joyful Christian living. So if there is no joy in obeying God, here's what you need to ask yourself. You need to ask yourself about the motivation for living out this list here that we read in First Peter. If you look at this list and you think it's daunting, you think, I just can't do this, then check your motivation and say, why am I wanting to do this? Am I wanting to do this because I think I need to make God happy or I need to keep up appearances? Then it's going to be burdensome. But if it's a sense of you say, I am just incredibly grateful for God and I'm in love with him and want to know him more, I guarantee you you will see that these things aren't burdensome. So, here's my conclusion. What does this have to do with making disciples? Isn't that what this this series is about? You just spent a long time going through this sermon and you didn't even talk about making disciples. What is this? What what are you you talking about here? Well, look at verse 8. It says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So conversely, that if we do have these things, um, then we will be effective and bear fruit in these things. And verse 10 talks about us being diligent to make our calling and election sure, that living out the salvation that God has implanted to us. And so a fruit... Not the total fruit, but a fruit of our calling is that we will influence other people's discipleship. And that's that fruitfulness he's talking about here. And so if you're living this list out out of a love for Jesus Christ and out of an awe of what he's done for you, that is going to be contagious. But we can't make disciples. We can't teach people to do these things unless we're working on our own souls and going back to the Lord and saying, Lord, teach me to love you and to be motivated to serve you. And so here are some questions to ponder as I close. Number one, do you have faith? If that question in your mind, if you're like, I don't know, here's the answer. And you can do this right here. You pray and you say, God, I'm a sinner. You've said you'll forgive me. I'm going to trust you that you're going to do that. Please save my soul. If you have a motivation to do that, God is giving you the gift of faith. I guarantee it. If that's you, I'd love to talk to you afterwards more about that. But if you say, yeah, God has given me the gift of faith, are you amazed that that is a miracle? Have you pondered the miraculous nature of the faith that you have recently? Are you living out your faith in worship and thanksgiving? Or do you see the Christian life as a duty to perform? It comes down to motivation. And so I close with this. Is your love and appreciation for God's gracious, miraculous gifts of faith, is that motivating and influential? And so my prayer is that we leave today with having a greater understanding and a greater appreciation of the miraculous nature of faith that has been infused into people's hearts and that causes us to love Christ so much more that all the things that we read about in Peter's list, they're not burdensome. Because we're serving someone who we love. And it will be impactful to those around us. Let's pray. Father, I do pray that we would be amazed at how good of a gift and how miraculous of a gift it is that uh, you have granted faith. 
And Father, if there are those that don't have faith in you today, Lord, may this be the day that they, um, they receive that gift from you and they follow you. The Christian life is a hard life. The Christian life is not a life of passivity. We are to work hard. We see that all through the scriptures. But I'm thankful that we don't work hard to earn your favor. We work hard because you have accepted us. I pray that truth would reign in our souls. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen.